reading our Hashem decides what's going to be in the coming year. So it's a very important Yom Adin, and in some ways even more important than Tishabah, because it is when HaKadosh Baruch Hu decides. This is why there's a very fascinating teaching, maybe uh, you, you heard this, in the name of Rav David Abu Draham, who was one of the early commentators, one of the Rishonim, in which he makes the argument that we know that we never fast on Shabbos unless it's Yom Kippur, right? If Tisha B'Av falls out on Shabbos, we fast on Sunday, Saturday night, Sunday, Shabbos or Batamas. But the Abu Draham says, if the 10th of Teves were to fall out on Shabbos, we would fast on the 10th of Teves. Now, now, this is a, non, a non-testable proposition. I'll tell you why. Based on the Jewish calendar, it is impossible for the 10th of Teves to ever fall on Shabbos. So it'll never happen. Because based on the days of Rosh Hashanah, right, there are three days of the week that Rosh Hashanah cannot fall out on. Uh, the first day of Rosh Hashanah can never be Sunday, can never be Wednesday, can never be Friday. That's a famous acronym in the Jewish calendar that spells Adu, Aleph, Dalit, Vav. Aleph is Sunday, Dalit is Wednesday, which is Tuesday night, and Vav is Friday. Lo Adu Rosh. Rosh Hashanah cannot be on Adu. There are four days of the week where Rosh Hashanah could fall out on, and there are three days of the week Rosh Hashanah cannot fall out on. But you understand that based on the calendar from Rosh Hashanah, therefore, certain other holidays cannot be on certain days. So the tent of Teves can never be on Shabbos. But the Abu Dram says, if theoretically it could, it would override even Shabbos. Now, there's a little partial confirmation of this, and that is, a Sarvateves could be on Friday. I don't know if you ever experienced this. Now, normally, we don't like to fast on Friday either because you're entering Shabbos in a state of hunger. But a Sarvateves, we do fast on Friday. It's a very strange feeling. You literally fast till it's Shabbos, and then you make Kiddush. So a Sarvateves is already unique in that way. The Abu Dram says it would even be Docha, Docha meaning even push away the holiness of Shabbos. Now, why should that be so? I mean, what happened in Asar Batavis? The truth of the matter is, it was the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's siege against Yerushalayim. The beginning. Nothing was destroyed yet. Not until three years later on Tisha B'av. So how could it be that Asar Batavis is stricter than Tisha B'av? Tisha B'av, the day of destruction, if it falls out on Shabbos, we don't fast. Asara B'teves, which was the beginning of the siege, that we do fast. That's a little strange. How could it be stricter than Tisha? But the answer is that if you understand that it is a Yom Hadin, it is the day of judgment over the building of the Beis HaMikdash, then it has a, it has, has a very, very special significance. Uh, as a total digression, since I did mention, this is part of your general knowledge, nothing to do with what we're, our course or anything else, uh, the rule that Rosh Hashanah, the first day of Rosh Hashanah, cannot be Adu, cannot be Sunday, cannot be Wednesday, cannot be Friday, starting the night before. So, just part of your general knowledge, why is that so? Why is the Jewish calendar made up in such a way 
that Rosh Hashanah can never be those three days. So let me take Wednesday and Friday first, because that's a little easier to understand. If Rosh Hashanah would be on Wednesday, so what day would Yom Kippur be? There's a certain formula that Yom Kippur is always, because it's the 10th, it's always the day after the second day of Rosh Hashanah. So if Rosh Hashanah, let's say, is Monday, is Monday, Tuesday, which it could be, so Yom Kippur is going to be Wednesday, right? So now, if Rosh Hashanah would be Wednesday, Yom Kippur would be Friday. If Rosh Hashanah would be Friday, Yom Kippur would be Sunday. So the main thing in the calendar is we don't want Yom Kippur to be right before Shabbos or right after Shabbos. So Rosh Hashanah has to be adjusted so that Yom Kippur will not be on a Friday or a Sunday. And Why the, not right after Shabbos? Again? Why not right after? What do you mean right after? Um, why not? Why should Yom Kippur be? Right oh, yeah, no, no, I'm going to explain it. So, why don't you want Yom Kippur can be on Shabbos, right? That's true, but Yom Kippur cannot be right after, or right before Shabbos. The reason is the following. The reason is, in the time of Chazal, we didn't want there to be two days in a row where you couldn't bury the dead, because you could, you cannot bury a dead body on Shabbos, and you cannot bury a dead body on Yom Kippur. And in those days, well, first of all, Halacha does not like to delay funerals. And second of all, in those days, a body would decompose. So the Chachamim didn't want there to be two days where you couldn't bury. Now, two days of Yom Tif, you may say, well, what about two days of Yom Tif? Two days of Sukkot, like you have in Chutz Laris. That's actually not a problem, because according to the Halacha, you are allowed to have Leviathan on the second day of a holiday. Yom Tif Sheni, you can have a Leviathan, even though we tend not to do it. But Shabbos Yom Kippur, you could not have a funeral. So the Chachamim did not want Shabbos to be, I'm sorry, did not want Yom Kippur to be Friday and did not want Yom Kippur to be Sunday because then, if God forbid, somebody died, let's say, Friday, late Friday afternoon, there would be two days you couldn't bury them and that would be a desecration of the corpse. So that's why Rosh Hashanah cannot be on Wednesday or Friday because of Yom Kippur. Now, Rosh Hashanah on Sunday, you don't have that problem. If Rosh Hashanah is on Sunday, Yom Kippur is on Tuesday. Nothing wrong with that. Right? So what's the problem with Sunday? A different problem. If Rosh Hashanah is on Sunday, Hoshana Rabbah, which is the seventh day of Sukkot, day 21, is going to be on Shabbos. And if Hoshana Rabbah will be on Shabbos, we wouldn't be able to beat the willow, beat the Arabah. And Kabbalistically, beating the Arava is so important that the whole calendar was arranged so that Hoshana Rabba would never fall out on Shabbos. And uh, the Jewish calendar is a very complicated thing. There's a lot of things, but, but by far, the most foundational rule is this Loadu Rosh. Like all the other, there are many rules, but all the other rules kind of come from this rule, the length of a year, which days have, which months have 29 days, which months have 30 days. It's all based on this idea that we can't allow Rosh Hashanah to fall on one of these three days. Did you want to say? Um, wait, so for the second day, you could bury the body thing. Yeah. Does that also apply to Rosh Hashanah? Uh, 
Yeah, that's a very that's a very good question. Uh, but even for Rosh Hashanah, we apply uh, for covered other things. Otherwise, you'd have the same problem. Right, right. That's right. Now, it is true that the minog in most of uh, most of the Jewish world is we do not do funerals on Yom Tif. But occasionally, uh, you hear about it. Uh, I mean, occasionally uh, people will do it because the halacha permits it. Oh, Hanukkah for sure you do a levi. Uh, no question. No Hanukkah Purim. Uh, those, I mean, you're allowed to drive. You're allowed to do those things. So that's not the issue. The issue is on Cholamoed also you do a funeral. That, that's not, a, not an issue. But I'm saying a Chiddush that even on the Yom Tif, the second day of the Yom Tif of Sukkot, or the Yom Tif of Pesach, you, you, you can do a levi, although it's customary that people don't because... Because the thing is, well, I mean, let me, because you can do the Leviah, but, you know, people, people wouldn't be allowed to drive to attend the Leviah. So, so the problem is, if we would do a basic bare-bones Leviah, we would probably have a lot of people desecrating the holiday to come. So, so the custom became not to do it. But among, and also, you know, uh, cemeteries are typically these days far out. They're not, they're not in the city like they used to be. Uh, but still, as I say, uh, I am aware of even in New York, in Brooklyn, of, of uh, Hasidisha uh, Kehilos that uh, unfortunately did funerals on the second day of Yom Tov. Okay, so that's Lo Adu Rosh. Okay. Um, all right, all right, but going back to our main topic, you know, where we've been going over Jewish marriage a lot, we went over the Jewish marriage ceremony, we went over the laws of Sheva Brachos for a while, and I think we began going over the Kesuva. Uh, the Kesuba is a contract that is signed by witnesses uh, that uh, it details a number of obligations. Uh, now, again, I want to clarify something. It's a little, maybe it's a semantic point, but people often uh, say it the wrong way. They say a wedding is not kosher unless there's a Kesuba. This is a, a statement that people often say. A wedding is not kosher. Now, I, I just want to, maybe it's a pedantic point, but I, I just want to be very, very exact here. It is true that a Jewish wedding must have a kasuba. Absolutely, it is an obligation. But if for some crazy reason they forgot to write a kasuba, the marriage is still valid. Meaning. If I gave the kala a ring and I said, Hare, you know, you're married to me, etc., and we had yichud and everything else, we are married even though we don't have a ksuba. Now, we're obligated to write a ksuba, even after marriage. We're obligated. But the ksuba itself is not a condition for the validity of the marriage. So when you say the marriage is not kosher, unless there's a kasuva that's a little ambiguous. If you mean by not kosher that invalid and they're not married, that is a false statement. They are married. If you mean it's not proper without a kasuva, that, that is accurate, right? So when you say not kosher, that's a little... Look, anyway, that's a borrowed term because kosher refers to, you know, <laughs> is the meat kosher, you know, but, but the phrase, the colloquialism, it's not kosher, has to be understood. Okay, so... The ksuba is not a condition to the validity of the marriage, but it is a requirement in, in halacha. Now, another thing to keep in mind, even before we get into the nitty-gritty, is the ksuba differs between a woman that is a virgin, 
versus a woman that's divorced or widowed or simply not a virgin. Meaning all those three are all the same. Virgin, there's one amount of money in the kasuba. For non-virgin, which includes you know, either divorced or widowed or just not virgin, uh, the kasuba is only half the amount of that money. Uh, and a woman who converted to Judaism is, is treated halakhically like a non-virgin, so her kasuba will also be the smaller amount of money. Now, you're going to see in a moment that the money is not a big deal because even a full kasuba is not a lot of money, so it doesn't, money is not the big issue. But one issue that does come up a lot is embarrassment, and I want to address it a little bit. Uh, you know, obviously, a per- whatever a person's uh, sexual history is, is nobody's business. So here's the question, what if a woman is not a virgin? Okay, remember, the ksuba is read under the chuppah, somebody reads the ksuba. Now, the ksuba is, uh, you know, let's say the woman is not a virgin. So, now most people don't listen to the ksuba, most people don't understand the ksuba, so whatever you read is not a big deal, but sometimes people do understand. So what do you do? What's the situation of a woman uh, who is not a virgin, for whatever, whatever the reason is, or, or, or a convert, same thing, and she doesn't necessarily want to advertise that point. So what do you do? So let me mention a few things. First of all, the one thing that is imperative, and this may or may not be difficult, is that at least the husband must know the situation, as, as the wife should know the husband's situation as well, meaning... There does have to be, you know, kind of disclosure. That doesn't mean, you know, dates and times and places, you know, and everything else, but generally. Because otherwise, that's called a marriage under mistake, and uh, that's not a proper thing. But assuming husband knows. So there are a few possibilities. One possibility would be that the husband says, listen, to the rabbi, you know, listen, I know the situation, but I want to have the ksuba of a virgin. I want to have a full ksuba. As long as I agree, what's the problem? So that opinion would actually say we can write a regular kasuva as long as the husband is not being deceived. Meaning you don't have to write a different kasuva. You can write a regular kasuva as long as, because if the husband says I'm willing to pay the extra money, which isn't a lot of money anyway, then that's the end of it. That would be the simplest solution. You just write a regular ksuba if the husband agrees to it. However, some postcom don't like that because they say, well, husband agrees, but it's still a lie. We shouldn't write lies. It's a sheker. So the second thing that's often done is a special ksuba is written. The ksuba of the non-virgin is written, but the rabbi who reads the ksuba either mumbles it or reads it really quickly, or, or if the rabbi is skilled enough, he reads it, because you'd have to read it by heart, so to speak. He reads the virgin, the virgin kasuba, even though that's not, what, that's not what's on the paper. Okay, so the three possibilities here are a regular kasuba can be written as long as the husband agreed. That would be the easiest, but some rabbis don't like that because that's a sheker. The alternative is you write the special kasuva, in other words, the non-standard kasuva, and the rabbi either mumbles, re- mumbles, reads it real fast, or can literally read 
a regular ksuba, even though the written ksuba is, is that. So I think I may have told you that uh, over the years, this has become my specialty in life. I guess everybody has to have a specialty. I get invited to weddings all the time uh, because I, I read the ksuba you know, fast and I mumble it and whatever it is. So, so this just tells you everybody has a talent. Never, never, sh- never sell yourself short in that, in that way. Um, okay, but the thing I need to warn you about is this. If you are using a non-standard kasuva and you don't want people to know about your background, then be careful where you put it. You know, people, uh, you know, if they have an artist, especially if you hire an artist, you can get a kasuva just, um, I mean, you know, you have to fill in the blanks, but you can get a kasuva for free on the internet, uh, and that's perfectly fine, perfectly kosher. Uh, cost you nothing at all, but a lot of people, you know, sometimes want a, an artistic kasuva, so they hire uh, an artist, etc., and then they put it on the wall. They put it on the wall. Now, that's permitted. You're allowed to have the kasuva on the wall, but if it's on the wall, uh, just be, be aware of the obvious fact that you might have guests that may come over and read it, <laughs> and they may read things you don't want. I mean, I, I, I know of one particular example where the woman was a giorist. That's all, a giorist. Nothing, I mean, nothing to be embarrassed about at all. <clears throat> but for whatever the reason, she was kind of private about that. Whatever, a person has the right to be pri- private about whatever they want to be private about. So a Shabbos guest comes over, starts reading the Ksuva, and blurts out, really a master of sensitivity, gee, I didn't know you were a convert. You know, and she didn't want people to know. Yeah, well, whatever the reason, I, I, you know, there's nothing to keep it secret about, but she didn't want people to know. So beware that if your ksuva is not standard uh, and you don't want people to, to know about what's in there, don't, don't, be, don't put it up in a public place. That's, that's, about, that's about it. Okay. So that's how you handle the, uh, the question about, uh, about the ksuva. Uh, as I say, if you do follow option one, if your rav follows option one, which means regular ksuva, as long as husband knows, then you're not going to have any problem at all. But many rabbanim do not like option one. Many rabbinic prefer to write it the correct way, and then they can mumble, read fast, or improvise when they read it, uh, and, 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 and the like. Okay, so that's one thing. So now, uh, let's go over the parts of the ksuva. The ksuva, number one, is in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. Uh, but Aramaic uh, is written in Hebrew letters, just like uh, the Gemara, right? The Gemara is in Aramaic, not Hebrew, but uh, the letters, the alphabet is a Hebrew alphabet. Now, Aramaic is a Semitic language. It's a very old language. It's uh, almost as old as Hebrew. In fact, Aramaic may have been the original language of Abraham Avinu, at least when it was not uh, in holy matters for Dibrei Chol. Today, Aramaic is not really a spoken language uh, among Jews. Jews use Aramaic in their Torah learning and the like, but Aramaic is spoken by some Christians. There are Christian villages in Syria. That's, they, don't, they, have, they have their own alphabet. They don't have the Hebrew alphabet that speak Aramaic. So if you're learning some Gemara and you don't know what the, the sentence means, you can ask some Christian in Syria, <laughs> and they can translate it for you. <coughs> and I also understand, I believe, that the Kurds in Iran, is it Iran or Iraq? The Kurdish people. Iraq. Uh, Iraq. Iraq is, yeah. 
that they 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 have uh, they they have a version of Aramaic as well. So it's not really spoken among uh, Jews anymore, uh, but it uh, is spoken among some Christians and some Muslims uh, in the world. Uh, now the reason why the Ksuba was written in Aramaic is kind of a funny reason because it doesn't apply today. And that is, many more people, many more Jews understood Aramaic than understood Hebrew. So the Kasuba was written in Aramaic so that the husband and wife would understand what they were agreeing to. Now that's a very strange reason today because Bidafka, Aramaic, is a language that, you know, even if you know Hebrew, Aramaic may be unfamiliar. But we see a similar example do you know there is a halacha, again, women do not have this obligation, but there actually is a halacha that every week men are supposed to read in the course of the week the parsha of the week, and this is called Shnayim Mikra V'yecha Targum. That means they read each verse twice and they read one translation of Unculus, which is the Aramaic translation. Shnayim Mikra V'yecha Targum and uh, the men are supposed to do it every week to finish the Parsha of the week that way. Now, the obvious purpose of that was that when Aramaic was the spoken language, I would read the verses twice and then I would see the trend, like reading a translation. Now today, it almost doesn't make sense in its literal way because people, if anything, instead of using the Aramaic to translate the Hebrew, I'll look at the Hebrew to translate the Aramaic. Oh, what does Unculus mean? Oh, I see the Hebrew word. You know. so, so that's why a lot of opinions say that today you could fulfill Shnayim Mikra Viecha Targum by reading an art scroll translation or an English translation because that would take the place of the Targum because the Targum, which is Aramaic, is no longer a language that we understand that well. Okay. So the different parts of the Ksuba, again, Aramaic, so part one, again, I think I may have said some of this, but forgive me. Sorry, why is yeah. it still written? Why is You know, sometimes the way uh, these ceremonies work is it became the Minog, so it became the Minog, but still it is important for the Masadar Kedushin to explain to the Chasna and the Kala what the Ksuva contains. That's still an important idea. Um, and it contains a number of components. Uh, the first, again, I think I went over some of this, but I'm going to re repeat and elaborate some aspects. The first component basically says, I, as a Jewish husband, uh, will support my wife in accordance with the laws of the Torah. And you'll recall that a husband has three basic obligations towards his wife. One is food and shelter. The second is clothing. So it's kind of, together we'll call that support. And the third is marital intimacy. Uh, in Hebrew, this is called she'er. <coughs> she'er is food and shelter. Kasus is clothing. Ona. Ona is periodic intimacy. And the husband declares that he is prepared to assume these obligations. I mentioned last week the very obvious question. Well, wait a second. If a husband is obligated to support his wife, food and shelter and clothing, then how could it be that in a religious home the wife is supporting the husband by going to work while the husband is in yeshiva or kola? How could that be if the ksuba says, I hereby pledge to support my wife? So the answer is this. 
he does have a duty to support his wife, but his wife can waive the duty by giving him permission not to fulfill it. This is called mochel, mechila, forgiveness, waiver. And when a woman says, I want you to be in kolel, and I want you to study Torah, and I will work, what she is doing is, she is waiving, she is mochelet, her rights under the ksuva, which she has the right to do. But that also means she has the right to change her mind. In other words, at any time, a woman can tell her husband, you know, this is too tough for me, I think it's time for you to go to work. Which means, husbands whose wives encourage them to learn full time have to be very, very grateful because it's not coming to them. It's not that they have a right to it. They actually don't have a right to it. The wife has the right to say, get a job and support me. But if a woman, out of the goodness of her heart, realizes that this is a good thing, so she has the right to be mochelas, okay? So that's how it works. So if, as long as my wife is willing to let me do this because it's better for the family, it's better for our Yiddishkeit, it's whatever the reason would be, I'm not transgressing in anything because the woman has rights, but the woman can also be mochelas on those rights. Okay, so that's how it works in terms of the woman being the principal uh, bread uh, breadwinner and the like. Okay, now that's the first thing of the ksuba. The second part of the ksuba kicks in if the man divorces his wife or the man dies. So if the man divorces his wife or the man dies, she is entitled to collect a certain amount of money. Now, the amount of money is expressed in a very strange way. You know, you'd figure an amount of money, all right, how many dollars, how many shekels, how many pounds, you know, some money that's used today. But that's not what the Ksuba says. The Ksuba says the amount of money that a man must pay his wife upon his death or upon divorce is 200 zuzin. Now, a zuz, there is no country in the world <laughs> that has currency that's called the zuz today. But the zuz is an ancient coin that used to be in Eretz Israel. We know that for two zuz you could buy a goat. How do we know? Because that's the song Chad Gadja at the end of the Seder, if you're still awake. Right? Chad Gadja, one goat. Dezovin Abba betray Zuze that my father bought for two zuzin. Hmm. So, that actually means if you could buy one goat for two zuz, 200 zuz, you can buy 100 goats. <laughs> So, that's a nice way. How much is a ksuba worth? The amount of money it takes to buy a hundred goats. Although that's not actually the halakhic measurement, but okay. So what is a zuz? So here is a very important thing you need, you need to know. You need to know that in halacha, whenever we make any reference to coins, we're not really talking about currency. We're talking about the weight of the silver in the coin. Meaning a zuz, was a silver coin that had a certain amount of silver. So when you're translating zuz, you're actually trying to figure out 
what is the value of the weight of silver that the Zuz contained? Which means, how many, if I ask, how many dollars is a Zuz, or how many shekel is a Zuz? It depends on the price of silver in the given time. Now, in order to know how much silver in is a Zuz, we're gonna go with the following way. When Zuz used to be a coin, four Zuz equaled a Sela, meaning just like four quarters equals a dollar, so in ancient uh, times, four Zuz equaled a Sela. So a Sela is four Zuz. Now, Pidjon Haben, the redeeming of a firstborn son, you had to give five selas, which would be the same as 20 zuzim. Now the Chazaynish paskins, based on proofs, we won't get into all the proofs, that five selas are 100 grams of silver. In other words, if I'm redeeming my son, and I have to give a coin the equivalent of five selas, I have to give the coin either 100 grams of silver or, or any, any object that is worth 100 grams of silver. I can give him a computer. Meaning, let me just explain this. The common thing that you hear, oh, you give the coin five silver dollars is not necessarily true. It really depends on how many grams of silver. If it's a pure silver dollar, five silver dollars will have 100 grams of silver. But later silver dollars had, were half copper, half silver. So you might have to give 10 silver dollars. You see, the critical issue is the grams of silver. Not the money, the grams of silver. I have to give the Kohen a hundred grams of silver or or money or property equal to the market value of a hundred grams of silver. Now that's for pigeon haben. Now if a pigeon haben is twenty zuz, meaning five selas, twenty zuz, a kasuba is ten times pigeon haben, because a kasuba is two hundred zuz. <coughs> which would mean a ketuba is 1,000 grams of silver, which is called a kilogram. Okay, so when a man divorces his wife or a man dies, a woman, a virgin woman, we'll talk about the man not standing in a moment, is entitled to get the monetary value of a kilogram of silver. Now I hope you understand again that this depends on the price of silver. Silver can sometimes be $5 a gram and can sometimes be $100 a gram or $200 a gram. The amount of the ketubah fluctuates. It's, it's very different than you might think. It's not like it's a fixed dollar amount. 
The only thing that's fixed in the ketubah is the weight of the grams. I am, in, not I, the woman is entitled to a kilogram of silver. If silver is at a low price, she gets less. If silver is at a higher price, she gets more. She gets a kilogram of silver. Now, the interesting, one, one interesting question is, well, do you determine the value of silver based on the date of the ketubah or the date of her collecting the ketubah? I mean, she gets married. She got married in 1965. And she's widowed in 2000. And the price of silver may change at those two points. She's entitled to the value of a thousand grams of silver. But do you look at the value on the day she got married, which is the date of the ketubah, or the date of her collection? Okay, different. These are questions. In other words, there are arguments over over those particular. But you, but you understand the concept of how it works. Now, as a practical matter. Uh, the average value of silver is around $5 a gram. Gram is not very much, $5 a gram. So that actually means that a ketubah would be around $5,000. Not very much. 200 zuz, which is a kilogram. Did you know how we got that? We got that by it's 10 times pidjon haben. So that would mean at a $5 valuation per gram, the ketubah is only $5,000. And if the woman is divorced, that's all she gets. Although I'll qualify that in, in a few moments. Now, if the woman had previously been married, or the woman is not a virgin, or the woman is a gioret, the 200 zuz is halved to 100 zuz. Right, that's the difference. Which means that instead of the woman getting $5,000, she would only get $2,500. Again, I'm going with the $5 per gram valuation. Okay, so that's the ketubah in the event of death or divorce. Now, in addition, however, there's a second component. This is called, what I just said, that this is called ikar kesuva. Ikar kesuva means the main obligation of the kesuva. But already in Talmudic times, there was something that was called tosefes kesuva meaning to say that the Iker Ketubah is mandatory. The Chassan must give this amount of money. But if he wants to voluntarily increase the amount of money, he could do so. There's no limit. He can increase it a hundredfold, a thousandfold, ten thousandfold. So there was an old, old custom called Tosefes in which the chassan would say in the ksuvah, in addition to the mosayim zuz, or the meya zuz, that I have to give, I hereby want to give an extra amount of money. 
Now, how much is a tosefta? So it's interesting. Originally, this was not standardized. It was whatever you want. You, I mean, whatever the chassan wanted to give, or didn't have to give anything at all. By definition, it's optional. For reasons that aren't entirely clear to me, as halacha developed certain minhagim, number one, it became standardized that every single kasuba has this tosefet, even though it's, so it's almost no longer a tosefet. I mean, it used to be an optional thing. Now everybody has to do it. And number two, instead of depending on what the chassan wants to give, it became standardized in terms of amounts. And the standardized amount is always the same as the Iker Kasuba. So essentially it just doubles whatever it was, meaning to say, if the Iker Kasuba was 200 Zuz, the Tosefes Kasuba was another 200 Zuz. If the Iker Kasuba was 100 Zuz, the Tosefes Ksuva becomes a hundred Zuz. Now, there's no reason why it had to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way, actually. But that's the way it is, meaning the, the universal custom is that Tosefet Ksuva just tracks Iker Ksuva. So, again, I hope I'm not overcomplicating this. I mean, so, so when all of the dust settles, if we assume a silver valuation, which depends, on $5 per gram. So it turns out the Iker Kisuva is 5,000 and the Tosefes Kisuva is 5,000. So the virgin bride will be entitled to a $10,000 payment. The non-virgin bride or the Gioris bride will be entitled only to a $5,000 payment. So as I indicated, this is not really big money. It's not, it's not negligible, but it's not uh, a huge fortune. Now, there is a view that says the following. There is a view, which is actually a very fascinating view, that says, the Gemara itself tells us that the original reason why the Chachamim picked these amounts was because it was the amount of money that a woman could get, be, get support for a whole year. It's enough money to live on for a year. 200 Zuz used to be enough to live for a year. So some postgimps say every kasuva automatically is upgraded to that amount, meaning it's a whole different concept. Instead of translating the 200 Zuz into silver weights, and then following the price of silver, which is the first way I interpreted it, these posts can say, we got to interpret the 200 Zuz as enough money so the woman can support herself for an entire year, which depends on the type, you know, uh, depends on the part of the country, but that could be much more, that could be $30,000, that could be $50,000, that could be $80,000. In other words, you might, you might call that kind of a cost of living es escalation 
interpretation of the 200 zuz. So you're not really, according to this, you're not really computing the 200 zuz. You're computing what is a reasonable living expense for, for a year, which was what the 200 zuz originally maintained. But that actually appears to be a minority view because after all, the Ksuba does say 200 zuz, so that seems to be the thing you gotta play with. And therefore, the majority would work with the 5,000 or the 10,000. And for the Gioris and the non-Virgin, you would have, have those two amounts. Okay, everyone understands uh, what it is so far, how, how the Ksuba works. Now, there's yet another component I'll get to in a moment, which can add some money to it. But before we get to that, uh, let me point out that uh, the Ksuba is, of course, a halakhic contract. So in Eretz Yisrael, for example, there's no question, a woman could go to a Beitin and collect her Ksuba. No question about that. And even in America, a woman could go to Beistin and collect the Ksuba. The interesting question is, could a woman go to a secular court and collect the Ksuba? Meaning, the Ksuba is vada'i a halakhic obligation. But does the ksuba become a contractual obligation? Can a woman go to court? Now, of course, obviously she'll, she'll have translators and everything else, but can a woman go to court and collect a ksuba? So the truth of the matter is, there's no reason why not. Because the ksuba is a contract. Now, the fact that it's written in Aramaic, that just means it has to be translated. But in theory, not only is a kasuva something she could go to a basin to collect, she could even go to court and collect it. It's like a promissory note that the husband owes her, <coughs> whatever it is, 5000 or 10000 dollars. Now, some have raised constitutional issues, uh, let's say in the United States. You know, we have the, um, those of you that are, I think most of you are probably American, I think, uh, you know, the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment to the Constitution uh, requires a separation of church and state. Uh, so the question becomes, hey, how can I go to a secular court and collect a ketubah? A ketubah is a religious document, so I'm asking the secular court to enforce religion. That's a violation. I mean, for example, I can't go to a secular court because my, my wife ate treif, and I'm suing my wife because uh, she messed up the kitchen. You know, can't do that because courts don't get involved. But nevertheless, uh, certainly in New York, the secular courts have said, again, it hasn't been tried all over the United States, they have said that even though the ksuba comes out of a religious context, but it is a promise to pay money. So the same way we enforce contracts to pay money, I can enforce this contract to pay money. So as a result, the Kasuba is a contract, both in Jewish law and in secular law, but both in Eretz Yisrael and in Chutz Laaretz, it's fairly uncommon for women to collect Kasubas. You're not gonna see it that often. And part of why you don't see it that often is, most of the time, when parties get divorced, they then negotiate for all the property and they have what's called a separation agreement or divorce agreement. 
and the divorce agreement will normally say this replaces everything, including the ksuba. Because usually the woman will get better, she'll get 50% of the house and other, other things. Uh, so most of the time, uh, a woman will get paid based on the separation agreement and not the ketubah. But the ketubah is her last resort, meaning if there's no agreement, if the agreement falls apart, she can always collect the ketubah. But again, the problem is the ketubah is not a huge amount of money. Let me point out, there is no alimony for divorced women in halacha. The only alimony that a woman gets is the ksuba. So there's no like, he has to pay her like $100 a month, you know, for the next 10 years. That's not true. Um, yeah. So if a woman waives um, her husband's responsibility and he's been in halal his entire life, then like yeah. what, does the money still stand? Like and his family has to pay it? Um, okay, I'll, I'll get to, I'll get to that. Okay. Uh, the family doesn't have to pay it, but, but, but I'll, I'll get to how you enforce this. If there's, okay. no, if there's no money, that's obviously a question. Now, the next part of the ksuba, there, there's a part that I'm leaving out, but I'll get back to it. The next part of the ksuba is how you enforce the ksuba. This is in the event of the husband's death or the event of the husband divorcing her, right? So she's entitled to collect this money. How does she collect the money? Well, she can demand, she can ask the husband to pay, but what if he doesn't pay or whatever it is? So the next part of the ksuba is the obligation of the ksuba creates a mortgage or a lien. Lien is a legal term, L-I-E-N, creates a mortgage or a lien on all property that the husband owns or will acquire during the marriage. Whether he owns it at the time we're getting married or he, he'll acquire it during the marriage. Now, what that means is the following. What that means is, if the kasuba is not paid, when the woman demands it, she can have any of his property, that means his real estate, his bank accounts, his computers, his cars, and they can be seized by the court, either a secular court or a based in, liquidated, meaning liquidated means sold, and she gets paid, that's like any, like any debt, how do you collect a debt, right? Uh, that's what you do. Uh, you, you get the property seized, liquidated, and paid. Now that means the following. If she's divorced and the husband's alive, she has the right to go after the husband's property. If the husband's dead, so there, there's no husband anymore, she can go after the estate, meaning, meaning it doesn't mean the family is obligated. It means the property they got from the their father is what's obligated. Now, that does mean, unfortunately, that if he had no property, I mean, let's say the guy was learning in Kolo all his life, so there's no bank account, and there's no real estate, and there's no property, then there's no ksuba. That, that, that's very, very true. Okay, be sure you understand the difference here. The children are not obligated to pay the ksuba, but any property they got from their father is subject to the lien of the ksuba, the mortgage of the ksuba. So if they inherited an apartment building, that apartment building can be liquidated 
to pay back the ksuba to her. But if they bought an apartment building with their own money, that is not subject to the ksuba claim. How does it get split up among the family? Well, okay, so here's the thing. She has the right to go after any property that was... Um, so, so, so if, they divide, if they divided up their father's inheritance, let's say three guys, uh, A, B, and C, Ruben. The family chooses. Yeah. So, so the, woman, the woman chooses who she goes after. The woman can go oh. after anybody. But then you are correct. If she went after one, one brother, one of three brothers, he would have a right to get reimbursed from the other two brothers. Now, there's, let me give you an example. Oh, okay. Okay, again, the ksuba is such a small amount of money, but, but let's assume she's owed $10,000. And there are three brothers who have inherited a total of $100,000. So each brother, let's say, has 33 and a third, right? Uh, 33,000, right? right? All right. She gets her 10,000 bucks from one brother. So here's the thing. Since this was an obligation on all three brothers based on what they inherited, so the brother that paid the 10,000 bucks can get 3,000 from brother B and 3,000 from brother C. And that way, each of them has paid 3,000. Right? That's how it works. In other words, that's called a, a right of contribution. So what happens if there's a will in, like in the US and the will says that you know, the, money's, or the money or the property or whatever is supposed to go to a certain person, but the kutuba says something else? Well, again, let me point out, the ksuba is a debt. Now, now we're not, the ksuba is not a will. If, if, if I write a will, giving my property to a bunch of people, but I owe money, my creditors take it first. I mean, if a person dies owing $10,000 to somebody, that $10,000 comes off the top. That's what an executor of a will does. An executor, in fact, most wills even say this. They say, after payment of my debts, I hereby bequeath my property. The kasuba is a debt. So the kasuba is going to come off the top. Yeah. So it's very tricky. I mean, the second wife is obviously not responsible for the kasuba that is owed to the first wife. On the other hand, if she put her property in her husband's name, then the first wife can go after it at that point. So it kind of depends on all of that. Now again, I mean, this sounds uh, a little unrealistic because we're dealing with not a, not a large amount, but these are the halachas of collection of debts and the ksuba is considered to be a, a debt. Now this is the lien. The Hebrew word for this is the shibut. The shibut of the ksuba, which is the lien or the mortgage on all assets that belong to the husband. And it mentions in the ksuba, even the shirt on my back. Technically, she could take the shirt on his back. I'm not sure what it what market you have for a shirt on his back but she could sell that shirt and use it to pay back the well I guess maybe if he's a, a famous actor or something <laughs> I'll sell that shirt you know and uh, get my super money uh, from that uh, from that shirt 
uh, and the like. Actually, I remember when I was a, a law student reading a case that um, a guy was hit by the IRS with a very big tax bill. And he was really very angry. He said, they're taking the shirt off my back. So he actually sent them a check. He took off his shirts. He wrote a check for like $10,000 to the IRS on his shirt. And he sent it to the IRS. Thinking, of course, that the IRS would reject it. The, the IRS cashed, cashed it. Somehow they, they somehow got a bank to process it. And a few months later, he got back his shirt as a canceled check. <laughs> and they had taken $10,000 out of his bank account. They, they actually took the shirt off his, off his back. Uh, okay. uh, if, if you're the IRS, you can do uh, you can do anything in that, that, that way. Okay. Uh, now let me just explain something about a widow for a moment. It's a little interesting. I, I've been tracing the situation when a uh, woman is divorced. When a woman is divorced, the only thing she gets is the ksuba or whatever they have in a separation agreement. That's a separate thing. When a woman is widowed, there are some zechuyots, some rights, that a woman has that is much greater than the ksuba. Uh, and this is only a widow, not a divorcee. Uh, and this applies, by the way, whether she's a virgin or not a virgin. This does not, the widow's rights do not depend on any pre-existing status. Number one, the widow has the right to live in her husband's home, rent-free, until she gets remarried. So that actually means the following. Oh, okay, there's yeah, a lot of things you got to explain here. Under halacha, a wife does not inherit her husband. When a man dies, all of his property goes to his children. The wife does not inherit. So if he owns the house, the house belongs to the kids. But the kids have to let the woman, even if it's their stepmother, not their, I assume their mother they would normally let, but even if the stepmother they don't get along with, she has free occupancy of the home until she gets married or collects her kasuba. Get to that. And number two, she has the right to be supported. That's food, shelter, clothing, medical expenses. In the manner to which her husband supported her until she gets married or collects her kasuma. So if you think about it, a widow would not even be interested in collecting her kasuba until she's ready to get remarried. Because once she collects her kasuba, which is her $10,000 or whatever it is, she doesn't have the right to live in the home, and she doesn't have the right to be supportive. But, so therefore, until she's ready to remarry, she should not collect the kasuba. She should be supported in the home and live in the home. When she's ready to be married, remarried, and those things are going to get cut off, that's when she would collect her kasuba as a final payment. So that's very important. That's very significant. A widow has a lot of protection. The widow essentially has the right to be supported, 
but again, it's from the estate of her husband. Not, 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 it's not a personal obligation of the kids. Okay. But a divorcee does not have those rights, and therefore she would collect her suga as soon as she, as soon as she could. Okay. Right, so everyone understands the uh, the basic idea of how a kasuba uh, works. Oh, yeah. Okay, so when a, when a man was married many times, all of his children are equal okay. heir. Well, sons and daughters, that's another problem. But let's say all of his male children are equal heirs, except the, the firstborn, uh, his firstborn from his first marriage may have a double portion entitlement. So let's assume there are five kids from first marriage, five kids from second marriage. The very first kid will get a double portion, as if he was two brothers, and the rest will be divided equally among all of the children, first and second marriage. Okay, there is no idea that first marriage has priority over kids from second marriage. Okay. Uh, now, sons and daughters is another issue. Uh, that too, we have different ways out. Well, well, maybe we'll discuss a little later. I don't want to bring in too many. Uh, different different ideas here. Okay, so this is uh, the Ksuba. Now the final aspect of the Ksuba deals with what uh, is called by the Aramaic term Nadunya. Nadunya is an Aramaic term that means dowry. And it had been customary that when a woman would get married, she would bring into the marriage property. The property could be, once again, could be real estate, could be fields, could be bank accounts, apartment buildings, cars. All of this is nadunya. She brought in a dowry. What originally happened was the dowry would be assessed at a certain value, meaning the parties hereby agree that the value of this dowry is $10,000, let's say. And the husband would agree upon my death or upon divorce in addition to the Iker Ketubah and the Tosefet Ketubah, you will be entitled to collect the assessed value of the dowry that you brought in. So these are the three monetary amounts. Iker Ketubah, Tosefet Ketubah, Nidunya. They would all be added as a claim in the event of death or divorce. Now, how much is Nadunya assessed at? So the simple answer would be, there's no standard amount, whatever she brings in. And if she doesn't bring it in, Nadunya is zero. And if she does bring it in, you assess what it is. But here too, we have, a, we have an oddity. 
that just as I said by Tosefes Kesuba, it was originally whatever you wanted to give, but now it becomes a standard minna. Nidunya became standardized. By that I mean there's an Adunya clause in a ketubah, whether she brought in the property or didn't, whether it's a lot or a little, we standardize the amount. So that's itself an oddity. Why do you standardize an Adunya? Why don't you look at it what it is? But what's even more strange is the same anomaly of Iker and Tosefet that we're operating with the Zuz, that's an ancient coin. Nidunya, we're operating with a medieval coin. That's also not in use at all, Middle Ages. And that's called, in Hebrew, and we don't even know for sure what it's referring to in terms of a coin, a Zakuk. So here is how it works there. So it's really inexplicable terms. The Iker Ketubah is 200 Zuz. This is for a virgin, let's say. The Tosefet Ketubah for a virgin is 200 Zuz. Same thing. The Nadunya Clause is 100 Zakuk. Not 100 Zuz. 100 Zakuk. What is a Zakuk? Zakuk is a Hebrew word or it's a Hebrew translation of a currency in Germany and France in the Middle Ages. A large silver coin. Many poskim, through various intricate proofs, say that a zakuk was a large silver coin that had four times the silver of a zuz. So, if you, go, if you go with that, 100 zakuk is the same as 400 zuz. So it would be double the amount of, a, of an ikr ketubah. So if an ikr ketubah is a kilogram of silver, a zakuk would be Two, well, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, if 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 two hundred zuz is a kilogram, one hundred zakuk, not one zakuk, one hundred zakuk would be two kilograms. Is that right? So b'sachakol, the nidunya, the taisefes, and the eker are four kilograms of silver. So now, the money becomes a little bit more, because if we go that a kilogram of silver is $5,000, right? So the Tosefes is $5,000, that's $10,000. And then, the Nidunya clause is double the Ksuva, so that would be another $10,000. So that gives you $20,000, still not not a great amount, but this would fluctuate with silver. For a non-virgin, instead of 100 zakuk, you have it to 50 zakuk. So the ratio to the ksuba is still going to be the same, double the ketubah.
Okay? Now, this benefits a woman if she didn't bring in a dowry because she's getting this compensation. But the chayra, if a woman brought in a dowry that's worth more than that, she has the 100% right. I see no reason why she can't actually say, I want the valuation of my dowry in here. People aren't even aware of this, so nobody ever brings it up, but uh, it certainly can be brought up in that way. Okay, so again, uh, the details uh, get more and more complicated. I don't want to uh, totally confuse anybody, but hopefully you have a better understanding of what the Ksuba actually says than perhaps you otherwise uh, would. That is, there are three monetary obligations, Ikar Ketuba, Tosefet Ketuba, Nedunya. In the case of a virgin bride, the Ikar is 200 Zuz, the Tosefet is 200 Zuz, and the Nedunya is 100 Zakuk, which is double the 200 Zuz because a zakuk is four times a zuz. In the case of a non-virgin, ikar ketubah is a hundred zuz. Everything is in half. Tosefet ketubah is a hundred zuz, and the dunya is 50 zakuk, or zikukin, that's the plural of zakuk. Uh, in addition, a widow in particular has rights outside of the ketubah, outside of the ketubah, and that is family residence for free and right to be supported. And those rights remain until she remarries or until she collects her ketubah, which is why a, woman, a widow would normally delay collecting her ketubah until she's about to get remarried. Okay, that's how it works. Now, uh, yeah? Is that right? If it is known that in your clause put in the ketubah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, interestingly enough, uh, she, she might still be able to claim her Nadunya, but then she would have to establish its valuation because uh, there's no ketubah that valued it. But she could still go to Basin and say she wants her property back in that, in that, in that way. It's actually not her property, but the value of her property back. Nadunya is the valuation of property. Now, let me just say a few words about child support and child custody for a moment uh, about all of these things. Obviously, a major issue in a divorce are the issues of custodial rights, which parents, joint custody, and the like, and the issue of child support. Now, in the case of joint custody, you understand nobody pays child support because joint custody means when the kid's with me, I pay, and when the kid's with you, you pay. And there's no, so when we talk about child support, that always means the parent without custody is supposed to contribute towards the support of the parent with custody. That's how it works. The non-custodial parent can be obligated in child support of the custodial parent. In the case of joint custody, there typically is no child support on either, either side. Now that's a secular idea. What does halacha say First of all, about custody, and then what does it say about support? 
So when it comes to custody, there are what you might call mechanical rules, automatic rules, but the rules can be overridden by specifics of the case. The mechanical rules are all children below six go to the mother because it is felt that younger children need to be with mom. If children are above six, the boys go with the father and the girls go with the mother. So I call them the automatic rules, right? The automatic rules are until six, mom, with dad having visitation, of course. After six, girls are better with mother, boys are better with father. Now, that's the mechanical rule that you start off with. But then, the basin has to look as to where will the children be better off. Meaning to say, uh, sometimes even the girls might be better off with their father, or the boys might be better off with the mother. I mean, obviously, if one parent is abusive, that's obvious. But even if it's not abusive per se, but it's what's called, again, this is identical to the secular standard called what is the best interest of the child. Halacha works the same way. What is the best interest for the child? But there's a very big difference. What halacha calls best interest of the child will not always be what secular law calls best interest of the child. I mean, let me give an example. Uh, let's assume a couple gets divorced and one party doesn't keep Shabbos anymore, it's not religious, and the other party is. Right? Now, as far as the secular court is concerned, that makes no difference. So the secular court might say, oh, joint custody is fine, or maybe they'll even give it to the non-religious uh, person. Halacha would say, assuming that there's no abuse here on either side, that the child is better off with the parent who will keep the Torah and keep the mitzvah. So both the secular court and the Jewish basin are going with best interest of the child. Or another example. <coughs> Let's say, well, it's really almost the same thing. One, one will send the child to a yeshiva and the other will enroll the kid in a public school because it's cheaper, public schools are free. Now the secular court will say, either way, either way is fine with me. A Jewish basin will say, well, what do you mean? The parent that's giving a Jewish education. Okay, so that's how child support works. I'm sorry, that's how child custody works. Now what about support? Now remember, a divorced woman does not get alimony in halacha. The only alimony a divorced woman gets is her kasuba. So she's not going to get any extra payments for her rent and her expenses and the like. Unlike secular law, there is no alimony for a divorced woman. But just because there's no alimony, she's still entitled, not she really, not, I don't mean she's entitled, but the children should be supported by their parents. So how does that work with child support? 
So the Gemara and Kesubis says something that will strike you as unbelievable, but okay. And it says, a father is obligated to support his child until the child reaches the age of six. Once the child reaches the age of six, the child in theory can be self-supporting and the father's obligation is only a matter of charity. It's a matter of tzedakah. Now, obviously, this rule came at a time that's very, very different than today, although some parts of the world are still similar. And, you know, it may hit us as so unbelievable that you're expecting a six-year-old to make a living. But you know, for much of history, that was not so unusual. And even in modern times, these are the sweatshops, right? You go to India, China, you love little kids making, making money. Now, Chazal, they're critical. Chazal talk about how cruel this person is, what a bummy is. But in terms of strict halacha, they could not force him to support his children beyond the age of six. So there are bastards even today, even today, that when a woman is seeking child support for her children, the bastards will say, the kids are above six, the father is not obligated to pay. As amazing as that sounds. But there is a tshuva, a responsa, by Rav Moshe Feinstein, which is really kind of a revolutionary responsa. And he says that since today it is the universal custom <coughs> that parents support their children until they are 18 years, of old, years old, once that becomes the minha, that becomes the obligation. And therefore, what used to be an obligation only under age six, now becomes an obligation until the age of 18. Many Bastins will follow Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's ruling, and they will order a father to pay child support till the child is 18, which, which, by the way, corresponds to secular law as well. But as I indicated, some Bastions will still follow the Gemara's rule and say, ah, oh, you're over six. Don't have to pay. Now, there's another rule I want to bring in, and that's a fascinating psaac of the Alter Rebbe in the Shulchan Aruch, in the, in the Shulchan Aruch of the Rav, right? Shulchan Aruch of the Balatanya. And this is interesting. He makes a point. He makes a point that even if you follow the Gemara's rule, that once the kid is six, I don't have to support him, that applies to food, clothing, and shelter, which, you know, I don't have to support him once he's six. But with respect to Jewish education, a parent must pay for the Jewish education of his child until his child has learned all of the Chumash and the Tanakh. But that's fascinating. Now, now, this is a major issue because, you know, a major issue, a major expense of Jewish life is day school tuition. It costs a lot of money. 
So what the Alter Rebbe is saying is, even if the bum of a father could get out of paying child support for food and clothing, he's going to have to pay day school tuition because Jewish education does not get get cut up in six. So the point I'm making is, we have this rule of the Gemara that says after six, you don't have to do it, but we have two major deviations from that rule. Rav Moshe Feinstein, who said that today the minog has changed. So the chiv goes all the way to 18. That's one approach. And then you have another approach, the Alter Rebbe, who says that even if you go with the six-year rule, even if you go with that rule, that only applies to food, shelter, and clothing. It does not apply to Jewish education. And that was never cut off. So, there are, again, there are Bate Din that will just apply the six-year rule to everything, but other Bate Din will either go with Ramosha or go with the Alter Rebbe, or go with both at the same the same time. Okay, so that's how child support works. But remember, uh, in halacha, there is no alimony, meaning the alimony is for the woman herself. Her only support is going to be the collection of the ketubah. It is only a widow that has support rights uh, before she gets her before she gets her ketubah. Now, one final little point, and let me just say that obviously, whatever a basin decides as a custody matter is not going to be automatically accepted by a secular court. Meaning, let's say a basin decides to the, the father, oh, you don't have to pay child support because your child is seven. Well, I can tell you 1,000% certainty that in a secular court, they're going to make him pay child support. They're not going to listen to that rule. Secular law has its own rule that you've got to support your children until they're 18. So the interesting question is, Halachically, if a base, let, let's assume I had this crazy basin, let's say I'm a woman, I'm a mother, and the basin said that the father doesn't have to pay for the support of his children once they've reached six. Now I, let's say I'm playing the woman here, I know I could go to secular court and get full child support. I know that. Halachically, am I allowed to go to secular court to overturn? the decision of a basin. This is a hard one. This is a very hard one. Emotionally, you know, my sympathy is absolutely with the mother. Because there's no question she could go to court and she will get that child support. On the other hand, unfortunately, it is the case that if the basin gave a psak, religiously, she is not allowed to go to a secular court to overturn that. So this illustrates a very difficult proposition that there are things you can do that you may not do. Meaning she has the power to go to court and get child support. But halakhically, she may not be allowed to do it. It's a hard thing. Now, in the real world, uh, the way it works is women will often do it. I mean, they say, I'm not going to give up on child support. But halakhically, uh, you know, I can't give a heter for it, really. I, I, I don't want to, I don't know how strong I would be to tell her it's usher because I understand where, where she's coming from. 
but halachically, once a base has paskins, it's binding on you religiously, even if it's not binding on you legally. Legally, she's not bound, but religiously, she's bound. Okay, I hope uh, this clarifies some things. Again, it's a complicated thing. Uh, my bracha is, of course, that any, any, anything to do with uh, divorce, dissolution, uh, widowhood, all of those things should never, ever be a practical issue in any of your lives. So this is for the pure study of Torah. This is not for anything that will be applied in a practical way. Uh, was there a final question? Yeah. Yeah, final question. Does this apply to um, um, like somebody who is in Israel or other countries? Does it applies across the board. Now, Israel is a little different. Israel may not may actually not let you go to secular court because the the basins in Israel are part of the legal system. But in America, if you went to a basin and the basin issued that ridiculous decision, uh, you're not legally bound. You, you're you're legally able to go to secular court, but religiously you might not be able to. And that, that's that's uh, where a religious woman faces a very very big nisayon. Does it mean that it's better to go first into a secular uh, court and then? Yeah. So yes. Yeah, so, so the truth is, I I, I misspoke a little bit. Um, I I know that what I said implied that there's only a problem if the basin ruled first. Yes, but but the truth is, e- even that's not true. Meaning, the woman is not even supposed to go to a secular court. She should go to the basin first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if it, that order was reversed, it would be the exact the exact same problem. So yeah, so I, I believe that in Israel, the common practice of the Bastins is to follow uh, Reb Moshe Feinstein, meaning they, they will give Mizonot until the age of 18. So you're not going to have... The, the people who go with six, these are, these are like very small Hasidish Bastins. Not, not Chabad, Hasidish Bastins. And they go, they're very, they're hyper-literal. And they say, the Gemara says six, we go with six. I mean, I feel like telling the other, oh, did your six-year-old go to work? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, kind of, it's, it's a crazy thing to apply those rules in modern society. But some basins do it. But Baruch Hashem, in Eretz Yisrael, uh, the basin does go with 18. Very much. Okay. Thank you. Yeah.